Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast, the podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Welcome, everyone, to the Eye on the Cure podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shaberman, Senior Director of Scientific Outreach with the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And I am really excited today to have as my guest, David Gam. He's an MD, PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we're going to cover a lot of ground on stem cell therapies for retinal diseases. And the work David is doing is very cool. And we're excited about its potential. So David, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Ben. Uh, glad to be part of this. It's my uh, maiden voyage on, on a podcast. I, I heard, I've heard of them before, though. Well, I'm sure you're going to do a great job. We're looking forward to, to hearing all your great knowledge and information. So before we get into the conversation, I wanted to let our listeners know David is a professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences at Wisconsin-Madison. He is the RRF Emmett A. Humble Distinguished Director at the McPherson Eye Research Institute and the Sandra Lemke Trout Chair in Eye Research. And lastly, he is a co-founder and chief scientific officer of OPSIS, a company developing stem cell therapies. So David, it's been great to have worked with you for so many years. I've always thought of you as so strongly committed to strong science and moving forward with your research very methodically and carefully. You, you're not a person to express a lot of hype. You're, you're very careful about what you say when you are setting expectations for emerging therapies. And I, th I think that's really important. And really, over the years, you've emerged as a leader and an authority in a, in a very uh, challenging field. And you're my go-to person when I have questions or want knowledgeable perspectives. So again, thank you for being such a great and reliable resource. Thanks, Ben. I think um, it comes from kind of a position where you you want to under promise and over deliver and and also interacting with patients in my clinic over over the two plus decades now when you're actually talking to the individuals who who are hoping to have therapies down the line you you want to make sure that you're doing right by those those folks that are going to be putting themselves potentially at risk for experimental therapies and so make sure they have right sized information and don't fall prey to all the other folks out there that are really just looking to make a buck. It's an important part of what we do. So I appreciate that, uh, that comment. Well, thanks again. You communicate so well and so clearly and in a very well-balanced way. So your lab is focused on what we call pluripotent stem cells. And these are the cells that can really become anything we need them to be. And they're easily replicated. And usually these pluripotent stem cells are either the human embryonic or the induced variety. We can talk about that in a moment. But you can use these cells and do use these cells to investigate the causes and the pathways of retinal disease. You use these to create models for testing emerging therapies. And 
most excitingly, I think, is you can use these cells as actual therapies, as emerging therapies. And for this discussion, I really want to focus on emerging stem cell therapies, especially strategies for replacing lost retinal cells. So maybe we can start off by talking about, I, I've given a sort of a quick introduction to pluripotent stem cells, but perhaps you can compare and contrast the human embryonic variety and the induced variety a little bit. Uh, sure. Um, and I think you brought up an important point that I don't want to just immediately skip over. And that is, um, you know, the word stem cell is thrown around a lot. And there are a lot of different different types. The classic one we think about are, are bone marrow stem cells that are used in transplants for individuals who have cancer or other problems. Those types of stem cells have, have a limited capacity of, of, for making dif different types of cells. So in the case of Bone marrow stem cells, it can make all the cells that you find in your blood, but it can't make anything else. So when you're looking at sources of cells for brain or retina or tissues that don't that cannot regenerate on their own, really you only have pluripotent stem cells. So that's and they have to be of human origin uh, in order to be able to go back into a human. So the two types are, as you mentioned, the embryonic stem cells, which were kind of came on the scene in the late 90s uh, with Jamie Thompson here at UW-Madison, and then the IPS cells, which came on in the mid-2000s with Jamie Thompson and, and Shinyu Yamanaka. And so just focusing now on those two types, uh, embryonic stem cells are obtained from in vitro fertilization. So you have an egg that's been, that's been fertilized and would otherwise uh, be discarded in the process of IVF. And what Dr. Thompson did was develop a way to culture those cells, keep them alive, and keep them in that very uh, primitive state uh, where they have the potential to become any cell type in the body, which is a, a remarkable and very powerful capability, but also very daunting because uh, you have this single group of cells that could become anything and will become anything and actually will become bone and teeth and a little bit of eyes and a little bit of liver. Uh, so being able to harness that power and to direct it towards the cell type or tissue type that you're interested in studying or ultimately treating is a very hard sequence of events to, to, to develop. And so that's what we embarked on with the retina. And along came the induced pluripotent stem cell technology in the mid-2000s. And what that did was it took cells that we all have walking around, either skin or later on white blood cells that we can obtain from a, a simple blood draw like you might uh, submit for a cholesterol check, that technology was able to take those cell types and then reprogram them or basically turn back the hands of time so that they essentially were at the same level of development as embryonic stem cells. That's an additional step though, and that's, and that's important when we talk later about manufacturing. So with embryonic stem cells, you start with the raw material that you're going to develop your cell or tissue from. With induced pluripotent stem cells, you, you start with a, a pre-material, that being either skin cells or blood cells, and there are other types of cells too. The benefit is you can take that from any individual walking the face of the earth. It doesn't have the same ethical uh, underpinnings that embryonic stem cells do, but it does add that additional step where you're taking those cells and then through a series of fairly complex steps, introducing genes, and there's roughly about four of them, that convert them back to this, this more primitive state. So from a manufacturing standpoint, that adds additional complexity time onto the process. But ultimately, you can get to essentially the same spot. You just need that extra step when you're talking about iPS cells. 
Right. And, and I'll add that while we've used the embryonic variety in the clinic for a longer time, one of your collaborators, Kapil Bharti at the National Eye Institute, not so long ago launched a trial for AMD using induced pluripotent stem cells. So they are finally in clinical trials for retina, which is, which is pretty exciting. Yes. Um, yeah, ES cells or embryonic stem cells, having been around longer, there is a longer track record in clinical trial. But iPS cells are, are now firmly in clinical trial, uh, Kapil's work and, and others as well, on Masayo Takahashi. So, so yes, so both of them have been shown and to be viable in terms of making it to clinical trial, which means it has to pass all the regulatory hurdles and all of the kind of the safety checklists that are really important and necessary to start seeing what they can do in a, in a human patient. So yes, so we're, we're they're already they're out of the gate. This isn't just something that we're pie in the sky hoping to do sometime in the near future. It's it's being done for some cell types. Right. And speaking of cell types, that's a good segue to my next question. So in people with retinal diseases, we know they lose rods and cones, the photoreceptors, but they also lose, in some cases, what are known as RPE cells or retinal pigment epithelial cells. Can you talk about why some patients more advanced disease states may need photoreceptors and or RPE cells? Yeah. So the photoreceptors and the retinal pigment epithelial cells are kind of like the Batman and Robin of, of vision. So <laughs> photoreceptors, the rods and the cones, they're at the apex of your visual system. They're the cells that detect light and initiate the whole process. But they're arguably the most complex and metabolically active cell in the entire body, meaning that they need a lot of help to do that job. So they're, they're kind of divas, they're high maintenance, and the cell type that is predominantly responsible for maintaining their happiness is the retinal pigment epithelium, which is snuggled up right next to them. And so, as you might imagine, diseases might either primarily affect those photoreceptors, which would eliminate that the, the switch, the initial switch in the system and uh, affect your vision, or they could primarily affect those maintenance cells, uh, those helper cells, which as they perish or become dysfunctional, you wouldn't necessarily immediately lose vision because the photoreceptors are still hanging around wondering where their servants are. But eventually in the absence of that, of those helper cells, the photoreceptors die as well. So that, so you have either primary photoreceptor death, and that would, your typical ones there would be retinitis pigmentosa, or you have secondary photoreceptor death due to defects in the retinal pigment epithelium. And that would be macular degeneration and other types of inherited disorders uh, like Best disease would be another one as well. And then the RPE65 LCA gene therapy trials would be in that, that category of primary RPE defects too. The interesting th the thing to also consider is that you know, you have to be cognizant of the course of the disease, because if you're early on in any dis, uh, degenerative disease, your best bet is to try and save the cells that you already have. And that could be through gene therapy, genome therapy, maybe pharmacologic interventions. But then as the disease progresses and the cells die, you then have to look for alternative approaches of which cell replacement is one. So I'm mentioning this because with retinal pigment epithelial degeneration, if you get to it super early, before you've lost a lot of vision, maybe you only need to replace the retinal pigment epithelium. 
and because there's enough photoreceptors still around, they're they're not happy, but they haven't died yet. Whereas if you're later on in the, the disease where you've had substantial vision loss and photoreceptor death, you'll need to replace both. So there is a consideration. There are considerations where, in terms of different diseases or different stages of disease, where you may need only photoreceptors, you may need only RPE, or you may need both. Right, and I love your analogy of. RPE being like the Robin and Batman being the photoreceptors. I, I think that's where you were That's going. probably the way the analogy works. Yeah, I hadn't thought it through that, that, that deeply, but yes, that would be. And Robin shouting out, holy retinal degeneration, Batman. And not getting any of the credit. So Right, right, exactly. And and he's uh, he's pretty important to the equation as well. So one of the things that I've been excited about that you've been working on is the combination therapy of RPE cells and photoreceptors for people who have lost both to, as you mentioned, some type of macular degeneration, maybe AMD, maybe Stargardt disease, or even certain forms of RP. And one of the things you've been working really diligently on for many years is scaffolding. And that is part of this two cell type solution. Can you talk about why this scaffolding is so important and what the scaffolding really is? Yeah. So it comes down to the architecture of the retina. So we've talked about photoreceptors and and retinal pigment epithelium. And they're just, they're not like two ingredients uh, mixed together in a bowl. They actually have very specific layers and orientations to one another. So these aren't randomly placed cells within kind of an amorphous tissue. And there's other layers that we haven't even talked about that the photoreceptors connect to and then those downstream cells connect to prior to sending the signal back to the brain. So it's it's like a complex layer cake and it's really just a beautiful structure altogether. But because it's so beautiful, you have to start thinking about how do, how do we not just replace those cells, but how do we start to, even in a crude way, recapitulate that, that beauty, that orientation, that structure. So, you know, you usually... Keep it simple to start with, you know, and so the initial approaches are are simply to try and place the cells in in the appropriate space uh, underneath the retina and hope that some of them do orient and make the the appropriate connections. But as kind of next generation approaches, one can uh, envision making that a much more efficient process by pre-orienting those cells. And that can be even just a single cell type because photoreceptors have an up and a down and RPE have an up and a down. And so if you get that mixed up and you're trying to put the Legos together, you know, you're only going to have a certain number of those Legos that are going to randomly line up appropriately. So being able to pre-orient them on a scaffold or some other device that has to be able to be placed surgically into a very delicate area and it and itself not have any deleterious effects in that very delicate tissue is a tall order, but one that's that's definitely worth investigating. We've done that now for many, many years. That's even more important when you're dealing with trying to replace multiple layers in that cake, uh, in this case, RPE and photoreceptors. And the reason for that is that those two cell types actually in your eye are not firmly connected to one another. They're loosely connected to one another via various processes like fluid flux, you know, fluid flow across the two cell types and and forces within the eyeball that that holds them together. That's why if you have a retinal detachment, that's where you always split. The split is always between the RPE and the photoreceptors. So being able to surgically manipulate 
two layers like that that don't actually want to be stuck together permanently and maintain that orientation through the process of insertion into the subretinal space and then following that, be able to have them stay together in the proper orientation. That's tough. And so having in a scaffold that is ultimately biodegradable because you're not supposed to have these artificial materials in the subretinal space is really important. And so we've worked with some wonderful engineers, Sarah Gong and Jack Ma here at the UW-Madison, and they will work with various biomaterials. And actually Jack Ma, his, his expertise is making very, very, very tiny chips for computers. I mean, cutting edge stuff so that they can jam more and more things into, into smaller and smaller devices on your wrist and even smaller than that. And so when I approached him and I said, you know, I kind of need that, but instead of your electrical circuits, I need, I'm going to, I'm going to give you cells. And he thought that was the greatest challenge in the world. And so he and Sarah started to work on this a number of years ago, and we've had multiple iterations now different shapes and styles that allow us to seed the RPE cells on them first, and now be able to take the photoreceptors and implant those on top of them. And they're able to maintain their orientation and also be strong enough to withstand all the surgical manipulation necessary and the manufacturing that's required to, to produce these things, uh, while still being, from all testing thus far, safe and biodegradable in the back of the eye. And everything you've just talked about really underscores the challenge of getting these cell-based therapies to work properly, to orient properly, to integrate properly. And of course, we want the cells to survive. One question I have is when you're putting together a treatment, an emerging therapy that includes RPE cells and the photoreceptors, is the scaffolding going in between those two layers of cells? So there's different ways you can do it, but the answer to that is no. Uh, we've worked very hard to minimize the amount of synthetic biomaterial that's required. Our initial designs had kind of a one-to-one -one ratio of synthetic material. It's biodegradable and, and theoretically safe in the eye, but it's still a burden. It's something that's not supposed to be there that has to degrade in the, and the eye has to take away. Between So one-to-one -one between that and the cells. And additional iterations of that of those te that, that technology has allowed us to make that uh, one to four. So we have about four times as many cells as we have the biomaterial. The rate limiter there is if you get too skimpy on the scaffold, it becomes too flimsy uh, and sticky to be able to handle. So you, it looks great in a picture or in the bottom of a dish, but if you want a surgeon to bring that up into a device, manipulate it, you know, put it through somebody, an incision in somebody's eye and place it in the subretinal space, it's going to just fold up and disintegrate. So you have to have that balance between the handleability of the final product and then what it, what its potential for both good and evil in the body. And that's another part of it too, is that, you know, all of these things, uh, we take very the safety portion very seriously because until you start putting it into patients, you really don't know. And so you try to stack the deck in, in, in favor of, of an inert outcome at the worst and a good outcome at the best. Um, but there's always that specter of you could have something come out where you know, you, a patient is harmed. And that's why all of this work ahead of time is, is important and not something we, want, we, we can or want to rush. Exactly. And I, I think that's such an important point is this is one reason 
science doesn't move maybe as quickly as we'd like because we're trying to ensure safety and of course the chances for success and efficacy so early on in our conversation i mentioned that you are a co-founder and chief scientific officer at a company called opsis i know there's still more work that needs to be done for you to move something into a trial through an opsis therapy but can you tell us what you're working on there yeah so the um, opportunity to start Opsis Therapeutics in 2016 really was in partnership with Fujifilm Cellular Dynamics International, which was uh, cellular CDI or Cellular Dynamics International was founded by Jamie Thompson. So you can see how all of the nepotism that's in, involved here in, in Madison when it comes to stem cells. But then Fujifilm bought CDI and started a, a cell therapeutics arm and then approached me about a subsidiary that would be focused on ocular cell therapies. And and that interests me. And so we developed uh, Opsis Therapeutics there and, and kind of built out a, a really amazing team here in Madison in partnership with the UW-Madison itself. And then more recently, we've entered into a strategic partnership with uh, Blue Rock Therapeutics in Boston and Bayer AG in Germany. So it's really you know a transcontinental effort at this point. And we have some amazing expertise and, and resources at our disposal. So what we started with, though, was this big question about and this, this challenge, how do we take what we do, what I, what I was able to do in the lab on a very small scale, kind of inefficient level that was using uh, techniques and reagents and, and steps that really were not conducive to going into a patient. I mean, I get that all the time. People say, hey, what are you doing in the lab? Can you stick it in my eye? I go, no, I'd probably, you know, it would not be a good idea. We'd give you infections. We would you know, there's all sorts of things that have to go on, use of clean rooms, uh, every single step that goes into the manufacturing of any drug or therapeutic that goes into a patient uh, has all of these quality control measures that, that need to be passed so that we don't do harm. And so that can cost millions and millions of dollars and take decades. We had the, for the good fortune of being a mile away from a company that for the prior 10, 15 years had worked out a lot of that manufacturing process that can go into eventually human patients already. I myself in my lab would never have been able to get the funding or have the number of people and, and assemble the expertise necessary to do that in 20 years, much less in two. Uh, so we were able to combine the patents and technology we had developed here and superimpose that on the existing expertise of how to take whatever cell type you want to make from iPS cells and make that suitable for human use. You know, that means cryopreservation, that means formulation, that means vialing, that means converting what we did in a dish to something that was in tandem three liter bioreactors, where we could, instead of making a million cells and it took us 200 days, we could make 100 billion cells in 70 days. And so that sort of scale up in manufacturing, uh, we were able to accomplish in, in a, a handful of years. And then once you're able to make that raw material, then you can start thinking about how do we fashion a clinical trial to test to see what they're going to be doing. And that's where we're at right now with the, with the uh, clinical strategic partnership with LUROC and, and Bayer AG. So we're in the middle of developing those, those protocols, and we hope to initiate clinical trials in the coming uh, few years hopefully sooner, but one never knows. And we've already had multiple conversations with regulatory agencies. And so we're very, we're, we're pleased with the, with where we are right now. It's still, still uh, a ways to go, but 
we have the team and, and the ability to, to get there. And so it's exciting. It is exciting. And I'm glad you touched upon manufacturing. That's a topic that can be a whole podcast unto itself. It's not trivial to make on a large scale cell-based therapies for really any condition, including the retina. So again, thanks for mentioning that. And I want to say that at least generally speaking, the work that you do can apply to a lot of different diseases, RP, Stargardt disease, AMD, again, depending on what cell type you're using. But you happen to be focusing on a particular form of macular degeneration. This is in your own lab. And that condition is called Best Disease. And can you just, before we close out, tell us what you're doing in Best Disease? Sure. Best Disease is a, a, a bit different. I mean, it certainly does, at least the work that we're doing on it, it certainly does fit in its end stages as a condition that could be uh, treated with uh, cell therapies. So, you know, cell replacement, because in folks who have had that disease for a very long time, like in macular degeneration, they, they're missing functional RPE cells and photoreceptors. It's also important to say that, you know, stem cells, like every other therapy, are not a magic bullet for, for whatever ails you. So there is a window in which replacement of single cells or even two cells might be appropriate, but past a certain point, you may need replacement of the whole retina. And so you have to right-size the treatment for the disease and the stage of disease that you're at, like I mentioned earlier. Best disease, the work we're doing there, one of the reasons we focused on that is because it's a nice platform for looking at the full spectrum of disease and how stem cells might be able to play a role in the development of therapies. Best disease is a relatively slow-moving disease. Uh, it affects the macula, which is a, a small but critically important part of our retina. It's about five millimeters in diameter. So it's a very imminently approachable and treatable portion of our retina. And it can take decades for people to lose substantial vision, which means that we can intervene on patients as adults and still be able to preserve or potentially turn back the hands of time uh, on patients who have yet to lose significant vision and then ultimately at the far end of the, scale, of the scale, perhaps do cell replacement. So I've already talked about the cell replacement portion of it, but one thing that, we ha that hasn't been the focus is how we use our model systems to, to in partnership with, say, gene therapy uh, to advance those types of treatments for patients at earlier stages of disease. So what we've done is create multiple different culture systems from different patients with distinct mutations that cause best disease. And then we've uh, used that platform to screen different types of gene therapy and gene editing, base editing, all sorts of read through, all sorts of different technologies, uh, because we have an excellent readout system for that. We can tell if a therapy gets into the appropriate cell, in this case, a retinal pigment epithelial cell. We can tell how efficient it is at getting into that cell. And then we can tell whether or not it does its job by correcting the defect. And we could do that both directly by examining the, the direct function of the protein that's uh, dysregulated in that disease, as well as looking downstream at, at the various processes that that gene is, is ultimately important for in the function of that cell. So because we have this suite of testing material and the ability to get really rigorous information it's become a real goldmine for us to work with companies and to develop therapies ourselves that can hopefully mitigate that disease at, at earlier and mid-stages. And then if folks are, are beyond those stages, 
of course, we have the cell therapies that we talked about uh, earlier in the podcast. Right. So in summary, through your cell-based modeling systems, you're really able to test a variety of gene and, and genetic therapies for best disease. That's mm-hmm. yeah. what you're doing. In the, yeah. In the case of testing, we're using disease cells. So cells that you wouldn't want to put back into a patient because they right. have the genetic defects still in them. Um, but in this case, we're trying to correct that in the laboratory. And that's how we advance gene therapies and, and other, other types of, of non-cell replacement therapies. Right. In the case of cell replacement, we want a perfect cell. We want a cell that doesn't have any deleterious mutations or problems with it, either by correcting it or using kind of a universal cell that is normal to begin with. Right. So... David, thank you for all this great information. I guess one thing I want to say before we close is you've covered what's been really decades of research to get to this promising point where you're preparing for human research and some other investigators have moved into human studies. And it's a lot of painstaking, challenging work that the foundation and other groups have funded again, for so many years. So thanks for your commitment. This is not an easy business to be in because you really have to work for many years until you you start really seeing the, the potential fruits of your labor. So thanks for your commitment. Well, um, it, yeah, I'm, I'll be the last to complain about it. I it's It still amazes me to get up in the morning and to think you can take a you know, a blood cell and turn it into some and turn it into a photoreceptor cell, you know, something that will detect light at the same level in a dish or close to the same level as a photoreceptor in the center of, of your own eye or that of a, a non-human primate. I mean, that's that's pretty exciting stuff. And to be uh, able to work with that material is a is a big privilege. And I do want to say that the foundation fighting blindness was way ahead of the curve on this back in the mid 2000s when everyone else was just kind of saying, hey, you know, this is too, this is too hard. There's no way you're going to be able to take this. I mean, it's, it's, they're cool cells. They have a lot of potential, but to be able to really harness them and use them in a patient, I don't think so. And so it was, it was, and even I have to admit that I kind of felt the same way at that time. It just seemed like such a long way to go. Uh, but FFB had had the the confidence and and took the rolled roll the dice on it and uh, and they were way ahead of the curve even on the federal government and and myself and other stem cell researchers at the time I think they had more confidence than we did so uh, so I always I've always appreciated that well we we appreciate your great work and for taking what seemed like science fiction and making it a reality so thank you before we close out you're a busy guy. <laughs> You've got a lot of projects going on, working with a company, your own lab, you're a professor, and you even see patients, if I'm correct. Yep. Uh, So do you ever take a break? We're in the middle of summer. Have have you been able to go on vacation anywhere fun? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I get to sit here and talk about it, but, you know, I'm not a one-man band working the symbols uh, with my knees and, and what have you. I've, I work with amazing teams. So in every part of every hat that I wear, I'm fortunate to have uh, folks that are uh, supremely talented in what they do and also are of good nature. I think that's the main thing. I think ultimately you're not limited in what you can do by who you know or, or what you have access to, but whether or not it's tolerable and fun. 
I mean, you, it's amazing what you can get done if you enjoy doing it. If it's a, if it's a chore, if it's a slog, if you have to work with folks that you'd rather not uh, talk to, then that, that wears you down. And from the, our sponsors, from our donors, from the people that, that uh, support our lab financially, to my collaborators, to the folks that work in my lab, the company, my patients, everybody is just a delight to work with. And, and that's a real, talk about privileges. That's a, that's a huge privilege. So not enough credit goes to the, the legions of folks that are, that are so dedicated to helping people with incurable blinding disorders. Well, and getting the word out, Ben, like you, there you go. <laughs> well, like you said, I have the privilege inside the foundation and outside between the constituents and great investigators like you. I agree. It's, it's a real privilege. So, but you didn't answer my question. Have oh. you been able to take a vacation? Uh, well, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I have my, my oldest daughter's getting married in October. And so the older my kids get, the harder it is to get everybody together. So you know, most of the time I'm always home for dinner. That's my rule. I'm always home for dinner. And, and I always go for a walk with my wife every, almost every evening, uh, weather permitting. And, but mostly I'm kind of a homebody. I like, uh, I like hiking and uh, going up North and, and relaxing, but I'm, you know, I'm not a jet setter. And so, you know, my, my idea of a good time is reading a, a mystery novel or something like that, having coffee and not having to do anything. Um, <laughs> so I can get that done just about anywhere. And, so, so yes, the answer is yes, I do. I do have downtime. Good. Uh, most of it involves my family. I, I think, you know, family's, family's the most important thing to me. And I've got some great grown kids and, and love spending time with them and, and extended family too. Well, that's great. I'm glad you have time to be with your family, appreciate your family and everybody needs downtime. So David, this has been a great conversation. It's great to reflect a little bit on the work that's been done over the years and especially what you're working on now. It it ultimately gives a lot of hope and encouragement to our constituents. So thank you for talking about it with me today. It's been a conversation. Thanks, Ben. These podcast things are kind of painless. I don't mind them. They're all right. Well, that's my goal to make it (laughs) for both you and our listeners. So hopefully we're imparting some good information. I'm not that oblivious. I, I, yeah, I kid. Yeah, I, I know. I know. Thanks. thanks again, David. And as always, thanks to our listeners for tuning in and come back in a couple of weeks for our next new Eye on the Cure podcast. Hope everybody's having a great summer. Bye-bye. This has been Eye on the Cure. To help us win the fight, please donate at foundationfightingblindness.org.